Welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. In light of COVID-19, our regularly scheduled 9 and 11 a.m. Sunday services are currently suspended. During this time, we will live stream our 11 a.m. Sunday morning service and plan to offer other online connection points throughout the week. You can find us on Facebook or visit www.rockpoint.org for more information, including important schedule updates. Before we get into our message today, I wanted to give you a little bit of a response from the survey that we'd put out. And we had a great response to it. And according to the survey, we have around 99%, over 99% of the congregation that is following this live stream right now. Only, and this is an anonymous survey, only two people uh, said that they're not following. And I'd talk to you about that, but they're not following right now. Um, We have 86% of those that are prepared to come back, um, some with preconditions, some when leadership would determine, but there's a strong response to coming back. Uh, we had uh, 91% or so that are open to the outdoor event. And one of the things that came clear in the survey is that you guys are incredibly flexible, that you're prepared to adjust service times, um, overflow, uh, willing to sit with kids, uh, whatever the case may be. And so I appreciate your responses to that. We're, um, it's, it's pretty much confirming some things that we knew and gave us a little more information. There were a few, uh, a number of you gave some great comments or, or specific inputs, and um, I'll only name one of them. Uh, one of them suggested that we have Mel hold open the door for everyone. Uh, so we'll see about how that one goes. Um, as I said, the, the, the live stream has been affecting a lot of different people, not just in our area, not just our congregation, but uh, increasingly around the country. Um, I was told even this week that it has been the source of reconciliation uh, between me and the feline community. Um, one of our couples let me know that uh, a cat of theirs, Gabby and, and uh, John Lowe, that they have a, a rescue cat uh, named Alfred, who was previously a Satanist, but is now evidently converted to Christianity and is now faithfully following the uh, live stream. So we look for this type of coming together uh, to continue. Uh, I want to commend most of you, at least, on your postings. You have been very thoughtful about those or cautious, and um, uh, things have been handled wisely so far. Uh, For those of you who are still processing some of this, we have one of our elders wrote a book a ways back entitled, What Would Jesus Post? And it was written by uh, Brian Wasson, one of our elders. And if you are still struggling with how to handle some of that, then I would encourage you to pick that book up. You can do it through Amazon. And get a hold of it. We've been in a series entitled uh, Songs in the Night. And I want to ask you this morning, as we prepare to get into Psalm 121, what is it that you're afraid of? What is it that stirs your fears? There's all sorts of different fears and phobias that are out there, and I won't list all of them. One of them happens to be, I think, a nomophobia, which is the fear of not having a, a mobile phone on you or having it charged properly or losing service. And so there's an incredible amount of, of different fears that we have. One study that was done by USA Today um, said that there is an increase not just only in fear, but also in anger. Uh, it found a significant increase in fear and anger, and that report was done back in 2013. 
And I think in recent times, we've seen that obviously increase pretty dramatically. So what is it that you fear? According to some of the science and studies that have been done, um, humans are born with two fears, the fear of falling and the fear of loud noises. Those are the only fears that we're actually born with. I really want to emphasize that. We're only born with two innate fears, that of falling and of loud noises. Those things startle us or the sense of falling that seems to be um, built into us. Most fear, according to the scientists, is learned fear. Spiders, snakes, the dark, all those type of things um, are influenced by our environment, by our culture. But a child is not automatically fearful of such items. It's something they get cues from their parents or from other sources that kind of trigger them as they go along. Um, another way that fears are acquired is through association. As we get older, there are different fears that, that come by reason of association. If a, uh, if a vet in combat was damaged by an IED that was in a uh, shopping bag, then when he's healed and goes back into the field, if he sees a shopping bag, he has an immediate reaction to it because it's identified with uh, the event that happened to him. Uh, interesting side note, as we were talking last week a little bit about the French Revolution ending in Napoleon Bonaparte's uh, rulership, uh, Napoleon Bonaparte evidently wanted to do a celebration at one time for a military success, and so he asked one of his uh, key aides, a chief of staff, to prepare a rabbit hunt for him. He wanted to go and, and have just a celebration of rabbit hunts. So this guy got a bunch of rabbits, literally hundreds. It's possible as many as 3,000 rabbits. And they set them up, and at the proper time, when Napoleon and all his guys are out there with the gun carriers and everything else, and they, they release the rabbits, and they're prepared to beat the bushes towards them. Instead, suddenly, all 3,000 rabbits suddenly rushed towards the individuals that were with Napoleon around him. And... Um, uh, they started scurrying all over the place. They tried beating them off. Napoleon started beating off with his riding crop. Others tried to, to separate. They tried to form a, a protective barrier around Napoleon. Uh, it got so crazy, they're climbing up his jacket. They're getting all over the place. He finally gets inside of his carriage, and they were literally leaping into the carriage. They divided around the group that was protecting it, and the swarm of, of crazy rabbits were uh, flooding all over him. The attack, as it was, ceased only when the carriage rolled away. And so the man that was dominating Europe was no match for a bunch of bunnies. And they found out later as they looked back that it was actually the chief of staff, Berthier's fault. When he acquired the rabbits, he didn't get wild rabbits. He got rabbits that were from a farm. And so these rabbits were not only domesticated, but their view of humans was different. They didn't see Napoleon as a fearsome hunter. They saw him basically as a waiter bringing out the day's food. And so to them, the emperor was effectively a giant head of lettuce. And so they swarm all over him. Um, there's no report on history as to whether, going forward, Napoleon then ended up having a fear of rabbits. But honestly, after examining that uh, antidote, I'm never going to look at Bugs Bunny quite the same. Fears come in different ways to us. There are only two innate ones. Others are acquired through our environment through our parents. Others are acquired by association. The brain processes fear in what you've probably heard by now, either a fight or flight process. 
Um, the first response is what one writer refers to as the low road. And there's a sensory system in the brain's amygdala that says what you see, smell, and hear, and it signals to the brain that this is something to fear. And so the adrenaline response tells your heart to beat faster and your body to sweat. Almost simultaneously, they say there is a high road reaction in contrast to the low road response. And this goes to your higher cortical center in your brain. The high road says, I've seen this kind of snake or, or entity of whatever it is before, and I don't have to worry. Think of it as a reasoning response that overrides the low road. A reasoning response that overrides the low road. Sometimes as we gather more information or as we face things, we can overcome those kind of fears and let that higher road take a function. Studies show that we can overcome our fears by being continually exposed to them. That is, we're continually exposed to them without harm or as we confront them. There's this bus driver I heard about years ago who's going on this, this regular route that he has and not an unusual kind of day. He picks up a few people, drops off a few people, nothing terribly unusual. But however, at one stop finally, this huge hulk of a guy gets on board the bus. The guy's six foot eight tall. He's a, built like a wrestler and he's just kind of just enormous. And as he gets on the bus, he looks at the bus driver and he says, Big John doesn't pay. The bus driver's taken aback and this entity, this person, goes ahead and takes a seat. The bus driver is about 5'3", very meek, very mild, and totally intimidating. The next day, the same thing happens again. This guy gets on the bus again and says, Big John doesn't pay, and he goes and sits back in the bus. The driver, as this happens day after day after day, begins to lose sleep. He's uh, not only fearful, but he's annoyed, he's angry. Studies are showing that I said we're far more fearful and angry than we've ever been. And those were studies back in 2013. And so the, the bus driver finally uh, can't stand any longer. He signs up for bodybuilding uh, classes. He takes judo and karate. Uh, he begins to read books on finding his self-esteem. And, and by the end of the summer, this bus driver has become strong and powerful and confident. And so as he re-engages with his route, sure enough, Big John gets back on board the bus and he makes this statement again, Big John doesn't pay. And at this point in time, the bus driver has this courage ability, he rises himself up and loudly, why not? Big John's kind of taken aback and shocked and says, Big John has a bus pass. The driver had misunderstood the entire time what was taking place. Because of that, fear had overcome him and had, had him losing sleep the entire time. Sometimes when we have more understanding, sometimes when we engage the sources of our fear, the situation can change. But as long as we continue to give into it, as long as we continue to let that drive us, as long as fear and anger dominates us, then nothing is achieved. We're told in the scripture that perfect love Cast out fear. P.D. James, an English author, had this response. Perfect love may cast out fear, but fear is remarkably potent in casting out love. So I ask you again, what is it that you fear? 
How do you deal with those fears? There's only two that are actually built into our system. The rest, all the rest, are ones that we acquire through environment. And some are legitimate fears. Some are ones that we've learned and understand from them. But some are ones that we've had no real understanding of. There's an ignorance that lies and underlies our fear. Or it's because of something that's associated. How ridiculous for Napoleon, the ruler of all of Europe, to be intimidated by future pictures or, or seeing of a bunny that would bring back a moment of time to him that he wasn't really under threat at all anyway. I wanted to give you that preface to go into this psalm, and it's a fairly short psalm. It's the 121st psalm. And this is talking about a God who helps us and, and keeps us even in the midst of trial and difficulty, it's referred to as a song of ascents. It's one of, of, of several songs that would have sent, been sung as people would have ascended or gone up into Jerusalem. Jerusalem is one of the higher points in Israel, and it rests amongst a, a bunch of mountains. And practically from anywhere in Israel you're going to go, you're going to go up to that place. And so as they would ascend up in worship, as they would come to be part of a festival or part of a, a time of, of worship, as they'd be on the journey, there were different songs that they would sing. Uh, some of you remember 100 bottles of beer on the wall. Well, that wasn't quite what they would sing. They would sing different psalms. They would begin to worship even as they were on their way. I want to encourage some of you who um, in this time uh, that you're hungry to be back in this place of worship again, to begin even now to prepare your hearts for that, to, to begin to sing even as we're on this journey together. There are so many things that can divide and destroy us in this time. We have political division. We've had this pandemic that has separated us, this energy that has been built up and resentment towards authority as a whole. We have racial divides that are tearing us apart and can potentially even within the church. We have social media, which is not always the best way of being able to communicate. And we're desperately needing that contact to be able to shake a hand, take a hug, look someone in the eye, be part of a group of worshiping together. But until that time, I would ask, prepare your hearts towards that. Whatever fears, whatever issues you're dealing with, let this psalm address that today. Because as they would go through this journey, as they'd go along, they could encounter all sorts of things from, from disastrous weather to uh, thieves and, and raiders to all sorts of different situations. And so as they'd go on this journey, they would sing these songs of worship, these songs of ascent of which Psalm 121 is part of. And it begins like this. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? Question mark. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And this is where we're going to begin with this psalm. He says, I'll lift up my eyes to the hills. What he's talking about in that is that as they're going along, they're, they're raising up and there's possibly two considerations of this. One is that, that they look to the hill or the mountain where, or where uh, Jerusalem was ensconced. And so they're looking towards that. But others have said that it's very possible as they're going along this that they would have looked anxiously to the surrounding hills as they're going up. Some of them would have gone on the same pathway that, that Jesus later talks about the good Samaritan and the, the man being beaten by robbers. Some of them coming from Jericho would have taken that same route. And so they could have been looking anxiously. And so one way anticipating the hills where they're going to go to where Jerusalem is, but also anxiously at, and fearfully at what could be surrounding them. I lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. 
My help comes from the Lord. They're reassured and, and they're confident in themselves that it comes from Yahweh, that it comes from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That even if it is the idea of looking towards Jerusalem there, ensconced in the hills, that they're looking to the God who made the hills, who made heaven and earth. And so even as they're on this journey and there's an anxiety that could come into play or an anxiousness, they have a resolution in their heart and in their mind of the God who made the heavens and the earth. The passage goes on and says in this that he will not allow your foot to be moved. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. This first phrase, he'll not allow your foot to be moved. Um, it's talking about establishing you in a firm place. Whenever you're hiking or traveling or crawling on something, I, whenever I'm trying to climb a rock somewhere, and I like rock climbing a lot, then I, I'm always testing to have that space that is, is there and secure. Sometimes we make our route a little tougher than we need to. Years ago, I was on a, uh, a hike in Scotland, and there's a place outside Scotland, outside Edinburgh, um, that's called Arthur's Seat, and it sets up on top of a, of a mountaintop. And as I came around the corner of this mountain, and I came into the valley, and I could see where the place was at, I, I started climbing up, and it was a pretty, pretty vertical wall. I'm very careful where I'm stepping. But as I'm going up the whole time, I'm thinking how difficult this is going to be if I have to come back down this same route, because climbing up is really easy for me. I'm careful where I put my foot, and I may have a good establishment, and then I hand holds and everything else. But coming back down, I can't see as well. And I was finding myself, the higher I got up and the farther the valley floor fell away, of concern of how I was going to eventually get back down. I was unfamiliar with the area. I hadn't terribly scouted it. I just saw my objective, and I went for it. So as I ascended on top of this mountain and I get to Arthur's seat, I find out that the entire backside of that mountain is a very gentle, easy slope all the way back down. I could have taken that easier route, but without an awareness and understanding, I took the more treacherous one. And sometimes that's what we do in life. But whether we take the treacherous one and find ourselves forced upon it or a more easy route, what this song is saying as they're on this journey through the mountains is to say that he's not going to allow our foot to be moved or there's going to be a firmness. We're going to be allowed to stand. And there's something about this idea of standing that, that we see expressed in scripture on several different occasions. In Ephesians, we see it talking about there where the full armor of God and that you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand in Ephesians. And so there's various different ways that we're able to stand. And if you look at this, and we won't discuss this fully today, but, but the concept of standing, of being firm in what God calls us to do is a strong one throughout Scripture. In Romans chapter 5, verse 2, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We stand in grace, in, in a forgiveness of sin, and we're unified in that. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1, he says, My brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, that you received, and on which you have taken your stand. We stand not only uh, upon grace, but we stand upon the gospel of reconciliation, of forgiveness. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, it goes on, and he says, Be on your guard, stand firm. He mentions in the faith. Be courageous and strong. He establishes us in faith so that we can be courageous 
in spite of our fears and, and circumstances we engage and, and strong. And then Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, especially in this season of time with all that's swirling around us. Don't be caught by the traps being laid around you. Don't let your anger and your fear override your relationship to Jesus Christ and your conduct, whether it's online or in person. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Don't let any cause overcome and override the cause of Christ. There are a lot of things that can bring about change, but there's only one thing that can truly change the heart of man. Only one. We can put all sorts of laws and regulations and transformational things on the outside, but only God and His Holy Spirit can deal with the interior of man and transform that rock into something soft and malleable and gentle again. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whenever I come, he says, and see you or only hear about you in my absence, he was checking the postings, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. We stand. We stand in grace. We stand in faith. We stand in, in courage. We stand also on the gospel, but we also stand in unity together. And we don't let anything break that. And so as he's talking about this passage, he's saying he will not allow your foot to be moved. And then he goes on and he says, he keeps you, he who keeps you will not slumber. And um, he references that again at the end, neither slumber nor sleep. Back when, uh, centuries before, it would have been remembered about Elijah, who at a time of a contest between the prophets of Baal and, and, and those who would believe in God, stands on the mount, Mount Carmel. And whoever calls down fire first wins. And 450 prophets of Baal are dancing around, slashing, singing, doing everything else, trying to get their God who doesn't exist. And at one point in time, Elijah mocks them and says, hey, maybe he's on the toilet, he literally says. But another time he says, maybe he's asleep. You need to shout louder. Maybe he's asleep. Then it's Elijah's turn and just a very simple, simple prayer. And then God responds by sending fire down from heaven. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. He not only uh, affirms our stance and gives us a firm place to stand upon in our journey, but he doesn't sleep. The tauntings of Elijah have no impact because he never sleeps. He is constantly on guard, constantly watching over us, constantly in care of us. One passage refers to him as our keeper. Um, another one in another translation of this whole passage uh, goes in verses 3 and 4, says he won't let you stumble. Your guardian God won't fall asleep. Not on your life. Israel's guardian will never doze or sleep. God's your guardian right at your side to protect you, shielding you. And he goes on and at the last verse he said, God guards you from every evil. He guards your very life. He guards you when you leave and when you return. He guards you now. He guards you always. That there's this constant awareness of God, of you. Who is man that God is mindful of us? Not only is he mindful of us, but he guards us. He keeps us. He is insistent upon being there. 
There's an old Eastern story that talks about a poor woman who'd come to the sultan one day and ask compensation for the loss of some property. How did you lose it, said the monarch. I fell asleep, was the reply, and a robber entered my dwelling. Why did you fall asleep, the sultan asked. And the woman replied, I fell asleep because I believed that you were awake. I fell asleep because I believed you, O sultan, O protector of the realm, O guardian of the righteous, that you were awake. The sultan was so much delighted with the answer of the woman that he ordered her loss to be made up. Our God does not slumber. He does not sleep. He preserves us. He watches over us. He guards us. He keeps us. The theme goes on in the next section of passage, Scripture, in, and it says, the Lord is your keeper. I want you to remember that phrase, your keeper or your guardian. The Lord is your shade at your right hand and the sun will not strike you by day nor the moon by night. He's saying that he's your keeper and guardian, that he protects us from the heat of the sun that can just devastate you on a really hot day and especially if you're journeying on a far distance to go to worship. And it says it's not going to strike you by day, it's not going to strike you at, at, at night. That there's a provision day or night. God is guarding you, he's keeping you, he's present with you. Psalm 91, verse 1, is especially uh, important in talking about shade and using the same word as shadow. He says, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the, the shadow of the Almighty. Under his wings, his protective, like an eagle spread out, they'll find refuge and will find rest. He's our shade. He's our protection against the visible things that are at, at daytime, and the things that we don't know at night. If we really lean in and grow into this, it changes how we view things. I'm going to share something kind of personal for a bit. One time I was a kid growing up. I mean, we all were. And um, I was about eight years old, and my father pastored a church, and we lived in the parsonage that was just 100 feet or so away from the, from the church. And it was common at night that one of my sisters or my mom would walk us home and my dad would stay after and there'd be fellowshipping happening and all. On this particular time, there was some event afterwards in the basement of the church and I slipped into another portion of the church and I fell asleep and it was assumed that I had gone home, but I had not. So everyone leaves, goes home, church is locked up and uh, um, I wake up in the darkness of the church. And um, I was, to be honest, a little disconcerted. At first I thought, well, okay, it's just lights off here. I was a fairly tough kid, and so I thought they're in the basement. So I went from the second floor of the, of the building to the first floor, and then I went down into the basement, which was totally dark, and no one's there. Now I'm really freaked out. Now I come back up to the upstairs portion. I'm realizing everyone's gone. I go to the front doors, which are glass doors and usually a shove bar there, but there was a padlock and chain that had been put on as well too, and so I couldn't get out that way. And now I'm really, really a little unnerved. The, the word is terrified. Now, there's a way I know I can get out because I know that there's a single door that's a crash bar, but to do it, I have to go from the vestibule of the church through the sanctuary of the church to that back door in the dark. For a kid of eight years old, the sanctuary was a scary place. A lot of spiritual things happened there, and who knew what demons or darkness was hanging out there? And so I couldn't bring myself to go through that point. I stayed at the door. 
And my father, who had come to, to kiss me goodnight and make sure I was in bed, realizing I wasn't there, came back to the church, and that's where he found me and rescued me and brought me out of that. My fear of, of the church, beyond that, because of other events, shaped and associated something with me, where church as a whole, from the politics to the hypocrisies to all the different parts of it, are something I didn't want anything to do with. So I'm sure many of you find it ironic that I'm speaking to you now as a pastor of a church. It's only in confronting our fears that I think really ultimately healing is brought about. Now there's still little twinges. I was here in the church just yesterday and I was in my office alone. Everyone else had left for the day when I'm hearing something moving around. And um, I, I at first ignored it, thinking I was just imagining it. We've had some fans going. There was some water damage in one area here. And, and I knew the building was secure, and so I wasn't too worried. But then I hear something going on. And, and generally speaking, if it's our staff or someone else, they announce themselves coming into the area. And nobody announced themselves. And so now I'm coming around the corner because for sure someone is not just uh, 10 feet from me uh, roaming around in the office next to mine. And so I come around the corner ready to deal with whatever's coming around the corner, and I find Mickey, our discipleship pastor, in his office sorting things out. And I let him know how close to death that he came. And um, he laughed at me in return. And now because of that event, I have a fear of Mickey's. Not just Bugs Bunny, but now Mickey Mouse. Everything associated now is a problem for me. We can let fears overcome us. We can let these things shape us or we can confront them. And in confronting those with God's help, those things can be overcome. God is our keeper. Side note, in this season of time particularly, there's been many times I've been here by myself. Many times I've been in this sanctuary and I find no fear in being in that. Instead, I find a quietness of God's presence there. The, the, the passage of Scripture, as it concludes, it pounds the point home as it says, the Lord shall preserve you from all evil or guard you. He shall preserve your soul or guard your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and, and even forevermore. I look to the hills. Where does my help come from? I have an anxiety as I'm on this journey. And over and over again, the writer makes it clear that God is watching us. He's, he's preserving us. And, and this three-pointed preserve is kind of like the movies that you see that is ridiculous, if you know archery, where the hero takes three arrows and puts them on the string and fires off three arrows and it hits three different targets. Or, so it's ridiculous. If you're an archery, you know, that just doesn't work that way. But in this case, it does. God's got three arrows and he's firing them off and eliminating our and preserving us from all evil. He's preserving our very soul. He's preserving our going out and our coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Another translation says Jehovah or Yahweh very personally will keep you. One writer, Spurgeon, a pastor of years ago, said he's not led me so tenderly thus far so to forsake me at the very gate of heaven. And so I want to read to you once again this scripture. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. 
He will not allow my foot, your foot, to be moved. I'll be able to stand. He who keeps you and I is not going to slumber. Behold, he who keeps us will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper, your guardian. He's your shade from the heat and the devastation. He's there by day and he protects you by night from the things seen and unseen. The Lord shall preserve you, guard you from all evil. The Lord shall preserve you, guard or keep your soul. The Lord shall preserve or guard or keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Lucy Grimble is a artist. She's a songwriter and a worship leader. And she wrote um, a song. But it came out of something very deep and very personal for her. And she puts it this way. Keeper, she says, a very personal song for me, which I wrote in the middle of a season of intense fear. Within a two-week window, she says, I experienced a very painful succession of events. The death of my dear uncle, a very wounding relationship breakdown, and then, she says, I was violently mugged right on the street where I live. It's the first time, she says, I've experienced the presence of fear in such a visceral, scared of my own shadows, constantly on edge kind of way. She says, I couldn't shake it. I avoided coming home late. I retreated into a shell. In the midst of it, the Lord spoke Psalm 121. She said, over me as a promise, not as a magic wand to fix me, she said. The fear didn't just disappear with that scripture, but the promise was an invitation, she says, onto a road to healing and rebuilding my faith, that the Lord truly is my keeper. It took months, but I held on to the promise, desperate for the penny to drop, often frustrated that it hadn't yet, willing my heart and mind and body to catch up with what my spirit knew to be true. Months later, God deepened my understanding by showing me how powerful His light, the same light that shines inside of us, is. Lucy says as um, she was driving home in the middle of darkness on a country lane, he said, stop the car and look at the stars. The night air, she says, was like a heavy, chilly cloak as I turned off my car and stepped out into total darkness. I looked up and I immediately heard the Lord say, there's more light in you than in one of those stars. See, fear, she says, had made my belief in the light, not the light itself, dim, and it was in that moment that my belief burst back into life. I'd become used to avoiding the shadows, avoiding the darkness, because they were threatening to me, and because I didn't believe that the light was stronger. But the light that lives in us is so much more threatening to the darkness than we know. The light shines, and the darkness cannot overcome it. The writer in John says, Light is unreceptive to darkness. It's darkness that has to give way when life, when light rather, shows up. She closed with this statement. She says, I'm still healing, but my belief is firm. That fear and darkness is no match for the light that will never grow out, go out. It was after that experience that she wrote a song entitled Keeper. Full right now of fear and anger 
We fear when we don't know. We fear because certain things have become associated with certain actions. But the follower of Jesus Christ is not to be filled with fear or anger. As we're on this journey together as a people, we're to exhibit something different. We're to stand in faith. We're to stand on the gospel that includes everyone. We're to stand in grace, in courage. And we're to encourage one another and we're to realize that, that we should reject what P.D. James says that perfect love may cast out fear, but fear is remarkably potent in casting out love, that we reject the politics of fear, of division and separation, that instead we embrace not only the love that God gave us, but the love in turn that we will have for others, that, that we will confront our fears. And in confronting them, sometimes they realize they never were all that big of an issue to begin with. I want to close with one little thought for you. There was a guy in Norwich, England. His name was Dave Page. And um, as he was digging around in his backyard area, he came across what appeared to be an unexploded World War I bomb. And so Dave, as he lifted up and realized what this cylinder was, he held on to it, afraid that if he let it go, it would detonate, which could take out the entire block. And so while holding the bomb, this 40-year-old Englishman calls up on his mobile phone to emergency services. And he even used that phone call to make his last statement known to his family. And he said later, he said, the woman police operator kept saying it would be okay, but I kept saying to her, you're not the one holding the bomb. First responders rushed into the area in eastern England and the army bomb disposal experts finally showed up. But the drama came to an abrupt end when it was come to understand that the bomb was in fact part of a hydraulic suspension system from a Citroen, a very popular European car. There are times that we find ourselves frozen with fear. But we need to understand and realize that the one who is in us is greater than one who is in the world. We need to remember the strength of our protector, of our guardian, of our keeper. While clutching our fear, we need to let go and release it and realize at the end, it wasn't a bomb to begin with. Lean in to this Psalm this week. Read it, study it, let it soak in your mind and we can confront the very things that can cause you to act differently than you should as a follower of Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for the courage that you give us. I thank you for um, the faith that you stir within our hearts and minds. And I pray, Lord, that as we go into this week, that we as Christians, whether we're posting or interacting with people, that we would be very careful to not let our lower instincts take hold, but that the higher function, not just of our brain, but the higher function of your Holy Spirit within us would shape how we interact with one another and how we filter and disseminate and pass on even information. Shape us as a people, Lord, as we're on this journey until once again we can come together and worship as one people. I ask your blessing, your guidance upon this congregation upon this church 
In Jesus' name, amen.